Welcome to the Queer Spirituality Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Crossenhill. This podcast is about an idea. It's the radical idea that queerness is a gift and that the divine celebrates it rather than merely accepts it. We'll explore the special role that queer people are meant to play in the coming spiritual awakening. Through the lives and stories of queer people, we'll explore the many ways of approaching the divine and how the sacred reveals itself in everyday actions. Most of all, this is a podcast about love. It's about the love of the universe. It's about love between people. And it's about the love a community can share with one another. Thank you for joining me. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Queer Spirituality Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Crossenhill, and with me today is Christopher Hughes. Christopher is the chief of the Anglesey Druid Order, a Druid graduate of the Order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids, and its 13th Mount Hamas Scholar. He is the award-winning author of several titles on Celtic spirituality and Druidry and the designer of three tarot decks. He is a Welsh-language television presenter and stand-up comedian. Welcome to the show, Christopher. I'm very happy to be here. How are you? I'm good, thanks, and I'm glad to have you here. So jumping right in, I always like to ask my guests right off, you know, what does queer spirituality mean to you? What is queer spirituality? Well, I would imagine that queer spirituality for me is the entire spectrum of expressiveness that I express as a functionality of my spirituality. So it's not something that can be wholly um, segregated out of my spirituality. It makes up the whole of who I am. So therefore, it it's integral to who I am as a druid as well. So it's part and parcel of who and what and how I see the world. The lens through which I see the world is is informed by many things, not just my queerness, but that is certainly one of the lenses through which I perceive the world. And of course, the way in which I engage with my spirituality. And um, so, so yeah, it's integral, I would say. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. So kind of a very holistic approach to spirituality and also that idea of, you know, queerness is at least part of the lens through which mm. you see your spiritual path. So tell me a little bit about your spiritual journey. So you're doing a lot with Druidry and you've written a, a, at least a couple books on Druidry. I know I, I have one of them. Um, how how did you arrive at this place? What What was your spiritual journey like? So here in Wales, we we live in a in a in a particular culture where druidry is endemic within our culture. It's always been a facet of Welsh culture and history, and we have two avenues of druidic expression here. One is Derwyddiaeth um, Awenyddol, we would call it, or inspired druidry, which is um, a spirituality and a way of living, and the other one is Derwyddiaeth Diwylliannol, or cultural druidry which is the celebration of Welsh heritage and the bardic tradition. But at the centre of that particular tradition are druids and ceremonies and rituals that involve druids. So to anybody who looks in from the outside, it looks incredibly pagan on the surface of things and is often criticised when people like the 
Archbishop of Canterbury was initiated into that Druid Godsev in the mid-2000s and received heavy criticism because he was engaged in what they saw as a pagan ritual. But of course it wasn't. It's a, it's a, it's a cultural ritual. So we have these two types of Druidry that float in and in and out of one another. They interweave. So whilst I'm a, a pagan animist polytheist Druid, I'm also about, which I'm very, very excited about. So by the time people actually listen to this podcast, I will have been initiated into the other God said the Bads, into the other Druid order. Um, and that happens on August the 11th. And, and I'm extremely excited about it because not only are they acknowledging me as a pagan Druid, but, you know, my queerness and everything is celebrated and wholly embraced within the structure of that Druidry as well as my Druidry. So it's a very inclusive, very welcoming, very safe space. And, and both of those aspects have been a part of my life since, well, since I was born. They've always been there. They've always been an element of my culture. So Druidry was very much a natural selection, I guess, for me to explore spirituality. I tried Christianity, but it didn't really quench my thirst. And, and I found that I just could not rise above the the judgmental aspects there was parts of my life my queerness would never be accepted not in you know the welsh baptist movement um, or the welsh methodist movement rather so i was already at loggerheads with it and and within druidry i found a place in which i could be myself without having to apologize without having to to somehow circumvent who I was in order to be a person that wanted to practice a spirituality. And Druidry afforded me that home and, and still does and continues to do so, whether it's the inspired spiritual Druidry or the cultural Druidry, which you know has an element of spirituality to it anyway. So I've been very fortunate in that Druidry was en is endemic. It's so, so integrated into our culture that to turn around and to say to somebody in, in Wales that I'm a Druid, the reaction is, an Im they immediately understand what that means. There's an understanding whether it's cultural or spiritual. Um, whereas to, to turn around and to say to somebody in Wales, I'm a witch, there's an immediate kind of like, oh, I'm not really sure what that is. You know, yeah. so there's there's a completely different reaction that you get. Um, but of course, you know, to, to somebody who saw what we do on the woods on the sixth night of the new moon every month, it's indistinguishable from witchcraft on many levels, <laughs> you know, quite indistinguishable yeah. from it. But to somebody from the outside looking in, um, yeah, it would be an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, definitely. So... I think it's really interesting that it's part of your culture and it's just so endemic in Welsh culture. And it's not so much that here in the United States, we have mm -hmm. ADF and I know there's some um, of the order of the Druids, Bards and Ovates. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I've known some people who are, who are part of that. Um, so for, for my, our American listeners who are more familiar with Wicca and witchcraft, can you sort of give the, the high level overview of what Druidry is? So Druidry is essentially an animistic uh, spiritual practice. We perceive that the entire world has within it a habitation, uh, is, is has within it a spark of the divine, or is a, a place in which the divine resides. Everything from a blade of grass to a mountain, to a mouse, to a person. And we perceive the world through a polytheistic lens. So we have a number of deities, and we don't dictate whether somebody would 
connect or work or develop relationships with those deities from a hard polytheistic point of view or a soft polytheistic point of view, but rather from the point of view that works for them. And we also practice um, a form of magic um, called bardic magic. So it's the magic of words and the magic of song that is involved in the transformation of things. Um, so, so we do practice magic, even though some people might think that druids don't. We certainly do. And all of those things are perceived and seen through the lens of a cult of a, of a Celtic worldview. And, and even that is slightly complicated because there are six Celtic nations, there are six Celtic languages. Arguably, there might be a seventh in Celto-Iberia. So all of these different flavors add a little something to that cauldron of Druidry. So my friends across the water, only 42 miles away from me on the Emerald Isle in Ireland, their Druidry is infused and flavored by the cultural cauldron of the Irish Celtic tradition. Whereas here, of course, it's the Welsh Celtic tradition. So we're all Celts, we're all related, we're all cousins and siblings, whether it's the P Celts or the Q Celts. And, but there's still slight differences and those differences come through language and art. So, but that's the, that's the lens through which we perceive the um the functionality of druidry through that particular lens and of course today um celtic can be some a somewhat controversial term for a lot of people who may not understand what that means but what is important to understand about the celts is that they're not something of the past we're very much something of the of the present i speak a celtic language i live in a celtic nation but druidry isn't limited to those who live or are from a Celtic nation. Um, there's no bloodline involved. This is a cultural stream. So there are people all over the world who practice Druidry. And I think a lot of them have an affinity to it, perhaps because of their ancestry, or perhaps just because they're in love with the mythology or the legends or law of Druidry that somehow sings to their spirit. And um, and that's all, and that's all really cool and fabulous, you know? And so yeah, it's 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 an animistic polytheistic tradition. Our particular tradition in the Anglesey Druidic in the Anglesey Druid order is very um, mythal, mythocentric, and and it's seen through the lens of the Welsh Celtic cultural continuum. Great, wonderful. That's a that's a wonderful explanation. Thank you for that. So, when we talk about druids, often we hear druids, bards, and ovates together. Right? They always seem to sort of follow. Um, and so can you kind of quickly sort of explain what is the difference between a druid and a bard and an ovate? Yeah, sure. So the, the bards were traditionally, or are still, they continue to be the guardians of culture and the guardians of tradition. So they're the ones who disseminate and also preserve the wisdom within the tradition itself. So they would be the ones that would be telling stories or reciting poetry and within those myths, stories, legends, and poems are elements of teaching that are transmitted to those who have the ears to hear them. So it's done in a way that on one hand is entertaining and was entertainment, but on the other hand, it was also used to disseminate the latest elements of learning and express that from the bad to those who had the ears to listen. So the ovate is somebody who walks between the worlds. So the ovate is the person who speaks to the gods or speaks to the ancestors or speaks to the spirits of the plant kingdom. They're the diviners and the soothsayers and the healers of the tradition. 
And whereas the Druids are the philosophers, the teachers, the ritualists, those who hold civic spaces, and those who who act as bridges, if you like, between the world of the bad, the world of the ovate, and then the world of ordinary humankind. So they're the they're the bridges or the doors that allow the other two influences to to bleed through and into the apparent world. So whilst they may appear to be separate things, I like to think of them as a triquetra or a triscal, whereas they have their individual expressions, but they're all held together at the same point. They all come from the same origin. They're just three expressions or three skill sets, if you like. And some people may be very much attuned to just wanting to be a bard or wanting to just be a healer without really doing any civic rituals. So, and, and that's, and that's, and that's lovely. It gives one the freedom to be able to express their talents and their abilities to the best way possible to be the best version of themselves within the tradition. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really unique perspective because it does give that sort of flexibility because some of the other traditions that I've been a part of, it's sort of like one person's expected to be able to do all of that. And, yeah. you know, and, and that's fine if you can, you know, some yeah. people have that ability, but not everyone has that calling or that, that desire to do all of those things. So mm, that's, that's a, very, a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it is a lot. Um, yeah. So tell me a little bit about how um, Druidry handles queerness. Oh, gosh, it's um, it's wholly embraced because I think as well, I'm. I think I'm correct in saying this, but I believe I'm the only openly gay uh, male who is a head of a Druid order in the Western world. I think I'm the only one. Um, certainly of the, the, you know, the big ones, OBOD, BDO, ADF, um, RNOADA and all of those. I think I'm the only one who's an out, open gay man. And I had a druid order, so that's going to influence you know, and inspire the structure of the Anglesey druid order as well. And, and what I love about druidry is that druidry is inherently non-binary. Um, we don't fall into the same categories as other binary systems. So take, for instance, something like Wicca that can be seen as a very binary system. Ours is the opposite of that, where one is not expected to honour a male divinity and a female divinity with equal amount of stress or tension. Um, one is free to be able to express their connection to the divine in a way that reflects who they are in the world as well. And, and what I particularly love about some of the archetypes or some of the deities that we have within the tradition is that they defy the gender norms. We have several of them, the same in the Northern tradition as well. There are some figures that just defy gender conformity so they kind of like you know they 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 smack that in the face and they challenge it and i love those particular figures that we have in our own um, mythologies that allow us to perceive gender and gender roles um that these things were written hundreds and hundreds if not over a thousand years ago but they still contain these mysteries that are relevant and things that we're talking about and affect us to this day you know so because i'm uh, an, an out gay man and um, that certainly influences the way in which the Anglesey Druid order holds a space for people who are either gender non-conforming 
people who are free to express their sexual um, identity and attractions. Uh, so we have we have a whole mixture of people, an entire spectrum from people who are trans, from people who are um, LGBTQ, all, all of the all of the Qs and the pluses and the Is and the Bs and the Cs. We've got them all, <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's really lovely because it feels very inclusive. It feels very safe. None of our practices cause people to to and and if and if anybody was to be uncomfortable by any of the practices, it's a safe space in which they can express how they feel about that, and perhaps then the order can shift or change some of its practices to reflect that. But so far, nothing like that has ever happened. And I think it's because we are a very inclusive space. So when I go into the wider Druid world, so say, for instance, with Obod, I'm, I'm a Druid graduate of Obod, and it's the same there as well. The, the emphasis, I guess, is not so much on one's queerness, but one's doing of Druidry. It's more about, okay, so you're a Druid, how do you do your Druidry? And, and of course, all of the elements that go into the making of a person is built into that, but it's not just exclusively one's queerness that's going to reflect itself or express itself in one's Druidry. And it's certainly not mine. There's, there's more to me, you know, than just that particular aspect. But I'm very proud and I'm very honoured to be a part of a community that is very inclusive and that when there are problems and there certainly have been problems in the wider druid communities um, they're addressed and they're addressed quickly and they're addressed efficiently and and I like that on the honesty that's inherent within the tradition and its ability to be able to look at itself from the point of view of a multitude of peoples and colours and diversities and you know all of that good stuff is is in the cauldron of druidry and and i feel very proud of being part of that tradition you know very proud yeah yeah mm. so something you said that i th i, I want to kind of highlight because i think it was really interesting is you know you were talking about the mythical figures who sort of play with gender a little bit and how old they are. And it just reinforces that idea that queer people have always been here because we look at these different, in every culture, there's sort of these figures who sort of bend gender stereotypes, bend gender roles, bend, you know, even maybe hint at other types of sexuality. There's old priesthoods that sort of had a gender variant element to them. And so it's like, we've always been here. But I'm curious, you know, um, for a lot of the listeners who may not be familiar with some of these figures from Celtic spirituality, like what's one of your favorite ones that you can share? So, so one of my, um, oh gosh, oh gosh, can I pick one? Oh my word, it's so difficult. Um, <laughs> I, I I have two in a way because because they're, they they work together as it were, and they're, they're almost inseparable in a way. And those figures are Gwydion and Aranrod. And some people may know Aranrod as Arianrod. And these come to us from the fourth branch of the Mabinogi. So this is a body of really old Welsh myth mythological cycles. And, and of course, they're, uh, they were written in the, well, they were last written in the medieval period. So you have medieval customs and practices that overlay these mythologies, um, a syncretic layer, if you like. And when we look at the way in which Aranrod behaves, she behaves 
in what would have been perceived in the medieval period to have been an anti-womanly um, anti-womanly behavior. She did not conform or behave in a manner that was expected of a woman in medieval Wales. And then Gwydion, who she has this battle going on with, he also behaves in a way that would not have conformed to the way a man would have behaved. So their gender roles are kind of swapped over and they take on each other's assumed gender role. And that causes not only uh, wonderful entertainment for anybody who's listening to these stories, because the people would have been a bit shocked, you know, by by the the starkness of the the behaviour of these of these individuals. But when we look at it through a modern lens, what we see are people who are just not gender conforming. And Gwydion is the one who raises a child. Gwydion is the one who uh, puts the child through a secondary gestationary period because the the mother of the child abandoned her role as a mother. She wasn't going to be a mother. She was forced into that position. And she's like, oh, hell no, this isn't me. I'm a powerful woman with her own kingdom. So the way in which she acted was just smacked in the face, spat in the face of gender conformity of medieval Wales. And they're really interesting characters to look at because they can tell us so much about who and what we are and what our assumed roles might be, you know? And and the fact that they're there and the fact that they've always been there. And even when we look at some of the classical accounts of the Druids, when the, when the Roman classical authors were writing about the Druids, they wrote very, very casually about so many of the Druids preferred rather than to get married or to be in uh, monogamous relationships. Instead, so many of the male druids chose to lie with nubile young men. And they just made these comments, not in any way that was judgmental, but rather like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, they they have sexual encounters with nubile young men, which seems to have been the druids' preference in the classical era. And, and it's the way that it's just thrown out there, I find really refreshing and wonderful in exactly the same way as these gender non-conforming archetypes, you know? So even all the way back in the classical times when the classical authors were writing about the Druidry, they mentioned their sexual preferences. And then in the mythologies, you find that there are gender non-conforming people. And, and I think that comes as a surprise, even to people, you know, of my own culture, people in Wales, when they discover these things, when they look at these things through a new lens, through a through a, a, you know, not not through a microscope, not eviscerating them, but actually looking at them for what they act for what they actually are, and having their entire perception of the myths changed because of that. I find that incredibly illuminating and refreshing. And we might sometimes think that mythologies and legends are stuffy old things that just belong on old parchment, but no, there's all this stuff in there. None, none of this is new. Now we may think, oh, we're all new and fabulous. No, we're not. We've always been here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've, been here, we've been here since the very beginning, and um, and we're not new and special just because we're in 2023. They were doing it in medieval times, and they were doing it long before then. Yeah, so finding yeah. these things is just special. Definitely, definitely. I've always really appreciated when you find a myth and you're kind of like, oh, oh, <laughs> so, yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> um. You mentioned something when you were talking about Druidry and, and, and queerness about the sort of inherently non-binary nature of it. And I know that in 
in Wicca in particular, it's something that sometimes queer people struggle with. I, I once taught mm-hmm. a workshop at Pantheacon and I had a lesbian say, I don't really want to include the God in, in things because I don't relate to that. It's not really who I am, you know? Yeah. And I was like, so don't, right? So don't yeah. is, was my answer. But I love that you brought that up that, you know, in Druidry, there isn't that exact balance. You don't have to invoke a God just because you invoked a goddess. And um, mm. and I think that even in Wicca and sort of neo-paganism, we're moving away from that, that more and more people are identifying as polytheists and saying, well, I'm just going to sort of pick the ones I want to work with mm. and not always have that uh, duality. But in America, I, I think that people don't always get exposed to Druidry. So how do you, how do queer people in America who are listening to this podcast and are like, man, I want to be a Druid, how do they get started? <laughs> so I think that there are plenty of resources. And I know the the largest American organization is Andrecht Fien or ADF. And, and again, they're very inclusive and their Druidry runs kind of parallel with the Druidry that, that we work here in Wales and also with OBOD and the British Druid Order. There is an inclusiveness and that inclusiveness does come from the fact that most of those systems are non-binary by their very nature. And so those organizations, they are out there. We're out there. We run you know online training programs as well as OBOD and BDO and ADF. But I think, I think that... The thing that people find refreshing when they come to Druidry in particular is that rather than having to be devoted to a particular god, a particular goddess, or having that moderational balance between these two energies, is that we tend to have a family tree of deities and spirits and ancestors, and that the relationship that we forge with these deities are very much in line with the relationships that we forge in the apparent world. So there are certain things that I might go to my sister for or the sucker that I take from my mother is going to be very different from that from my grandmother um, to that from my husband. But those relationships each have value and each have meaning, but in very different ways. So in our particular form of Druidry, we have a vast family tree of deities. And it isn't so much about what they express as something that conforms to a gender stereotype but rather what gifts those individuals have that marry up with our own talents abilities strengths and weaknesses so that the relationship that we forge with them isn't one that is you know because the the relationship I have with I'm trying to think you know my friend Tiffany isn't because Tiffany is a woman or a straight woman it's because she's a really good listener and I need that in a friend So the same kind of applies with the relationships that I have with my gods and goddesses and the non-conforming ones in between, you know? Um, And I think that people find that rather refreshing, that the relationships are based very much on the same principles as the ones that we have in the human world. And sometimes I think that we forget that the gods and the goddesses and the spirits and ancestors are also as fallible as we are and as flawed as we are. And we can create meaningful relationships with them in a way that doesn't take away something that's unique in us and and I think that's true of of all of the druid organizations that I'm aware of or that I work with and I work very closely with a lot of them that there's this 
fluidity and flexibility in the way that we define relationships and that ultimately the relationships that we develop whether they're with other human beings the animal the plant kingdom or the unseen world is one that's based on depth of relationship and on sacred relationships that we perceive that each of us somehow reflect that which is sacred and um so yeah so whether people study with us or obod or adf i think there's an element of that fluidity and flexibility in all of those systems yeah yeah you have such a passion for it and the way you describe it is just very very poetic i can see why you're initiating into a bardic tradition so. <laughs> <laughs> i'm so excited um, about that i'm so excited <laughs> yeah yeah it sounds very exciting um you have a number of books, so I want to make sure we get a chance to sort of mention your books, because I, I think that people who are interested in Druidity could learn a lot from your books as well. So, you know, share share a little bit about some of your books. So so the last one that um, has just just come out this summer is called The Book of Druidry. And and again, and even that's a complete introduction to the magic of the Celtic mysteries. But again, I think sometimes people might be put off by the term Druidry, but ultimately the word Druidry just means somebody who is oak-wise. It's a wisdom tradition, and so much of that wisdom tradition can apply to so many other traditions. So we have witches and Wiccans and Northern tradition folk and and and, and none of the, of the above who are members of, you know, the order that I head and also of Obod. It's very inclusive because wisdom isn't exclusive. Wisdom is inclusive of anybody who strives to be oak wise. And essentially, that's the message of Druidry, is that it's a wisdom tradition that embraces other traditions and forges and nourishes a person to become the wisest version of themselves that they can be. And it does so through a particular lens. And my last book, The Book of Druidry, focuses on what does that actually mean? Uh, where does it come from? And how do I use it in the real world? So I wanted to, and at first I was a, a little reluctant because it it's an introductory book. And I thought, oh gosh, do I really want to write a 101 book? You know, because sometimes they can come with a bit of baggage. But then I thought, well, actually, no, because there needs to be uh, an introductory book to every tradition all the time, you know, from different perspectives, from different voices. And, and I wanted it to come from somebody who is, you know, an, uh, a head of a Druid order, um, an, a native Welsh speaker, and also a queer person, because I think having those voices out there, including mine, is important, that people can perceive that, okay, this guy has written this book, and that is part of the lens that colours his perception of what Druidry is. And even though I don't really go much into my queerness in my book of Druidry, it's certainly there because it informs it informs so much of who I am as a person. It can't not be in there. So, and I think having that representation out there is is really important. So, so yeah, having a having a platform to write books in itself is something that I constantly pinch myself. Sometimes I find it very terrifying because I feel like an imposter because English is my second language. And some, and I think that somebody one day might find out. <laughs> I go, you're not English and you're writing books in English. Oh, and the whole world will fall apart. And um, so it's a really peculiar <laughs> place to be in. But I'm very grateful and thankful for those opportunities. So so yeah, so I tend to focus on Druidry or the wisdom tradition. Oh, sorry, I'm clanging <laughs> things right, on the desk right. here. And um, so I tend to 
focus on um, Druidry or the wisdom traditions from the um, Welsh Celtic tradition. And uh, so my last book focuses entirely on a, um, one of the goddesses from that tradition, who is very popular in not only the Druidry world, but also in witchcraft circles, the goddess Ceridwen, the um, goddess of inspiration. So I wrote an entire book about her because nobody had. I thought, oh, you know, ah. somebody should. So I did. And um, But I'm also a huge tarot fan. I'm a huge tarot nut. And so I design uh, tarot decks as well, which is a lovely thing to do. I absolutely adore that. And my Yuletide Tarot is out now. Just come out. Okay, great. Well, we'll certainly yeah. link to that so that people can can go find it um in the in the description. Um I think it's funny you said you you know about feeling like an imposter because English is your your second language. Because I think sometimes even native speakers, when we're teaching workshops or talking about things that we've experienced, we feel like, you know, there's no no new ideas. And sometimes it feels like you're an imposter or you're just regurgitating things that have been said. And I, yeah. I, I remember um, a Pantheacon where someone asked Z Budapest about, they were getting some like channeled information and it was a language they didn't speak. And she said, well, learn another language. I had to learn English to, to write yes. when I came to America. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> that's so true. It's so true. Yeah. And I think, um, I think, I think sometimes that imposter syndrome, it can sometimes be useful as well because it keeps you on your toes, you know, and keeps you yes. alert. And, and I've suffered with it all my life. I, I, you know, I suffered immensely and, and still do to this day of imposter syndrome, even within the gay community. Um, I didn't really feel as if I ever felt that I fit in. I was never, you know, body beautiful and never have considered myself to be traditionally handsome or attractive. And I felt that even in queer spaces, I didn't fit in. I didn't feel as if I, I belonged there. And I loathed, I absolutely loathed the, the club scene. It just hurt my ears and it still hurts my ears to this day, you know? And, yeah. um, so I always felt like an imposter even in there, but but even that was alleviated because um, you know I'm a, I'm a, a professional drag queen on Welsh language television. That's what the acting bit that I do. So I became a drag queen, and the drag queen offset my own imposter syndrome because then I found that I did have a place, and yeah. the place was there to be. Um, you know, a part of that community in a way that I felt that I was no longer an imposter. And and there was a, a you know, and that came with an admiration and a, and a respect that I didn't feel that I could get just as an ordinary man. Um, I just didn't feel as if I fit in. So, but now as the seven foot two Welsh drag queen, Maggie Noggy, um, I fit in perfectly well. So that kind of imposter syndrome alleviated itself. It, it was dealt with. Uh, and then, you know, I still have to deal with the fact that the other imposter syndrome is Welsh is my first language, English is my second. But I'm learning to live with that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's it's peculiar, you know, how all of those things, um, my queerness, my imposter syndromes, my anxieties, my passions, all of those have fed into this pool of who I am today, you know, as a 52-year-old um, white gay Welshman from an island in North Wales. Um, all of those things have informed me. And but of course, that queerness has always been a part of, of that story. 
And so I'm very lucky that I get to write for Llewellyn Worldwide because, you know, we're out there and we're doing stuff and we're doing yeah. you know, important stuff. And um, so, yeah, it's good. Yeah. Well, I just want to I just want to thank you for the vulnerability of talking about that imposter syndrome in queer spaces, because I think that goes unsaid a lot and that lots of queer people experience that, you know, they feel like I don't have the right body. I don't have the right look. I'm not into yeah. this club scene. And it can be very, very hard for people to to overcome that. And, you know, you found a wonderful outlet in becoming a drag queen and mm -hmm. lots of other people do that as well. But even people then who don't feel drawn to that, you know, how mm -hmm. do they move through queer spaces and feel comfortable in their own skin, which is something that's really important in my work. And then what I, one of the areas that I coach gay by men on is how do you sort yeah. of show up as your most authentic self and just love that, yeah. who that is and be that. Right. And so yeah, I, I navigate I, that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I'm really glad that you mentioned it, because I think so often people just sort of keep that to themselves. And they never mention like, hey, I feel mm. out of place here. And I think mm. we've made shade part of queer culture. But sometimes shade can be a little hurtful, it gets into an area where and it's very judgmental and, and hurtful. And we need to have more awareness there as a community. So I'm glad that we got to talk about that. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, be be the, the compassionate versions of ourselves that we can be, as well as the wise version of ourselves. You know, all of those things. And and I think um, also having the the conversations and the dialogues that are important for, for people to hear, that people speak about their insecurities and anxieties about how they grew up in the in the queer in queer spaces. Like my experience was very fraught. Um, but I did manage to circumnavigate it. My my husband, you know, we've been together for 32 years, which is, you know, a long time in in the queer world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and my husband ca can't, he can't deal at all with, you know, the club scene or the bar scene whatsoever. He's never, he's never felt comfortable in that place. And, but never really had anybody to talk to about it apart from me. You know, yeah. and and a part of me does enjoy that, and part of uh, and that is a part of my work now. I work in those spaces, and and we've had to talk about it as well as a couple. You know, because that could have been antagonistic. It could have been a difficult conversation, uh, or yeah. it could have caused unnecessary tension. But thankfully, we're we're grown adults, and we're able to sit down and have an adult conversation about it, and uh, and not become you know not be at loggerheads with it, and um, so consequently, we're still together. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. And congratulations on being yeah. together so long. My, my husband and I just celebrated 15, which is still kind oh, of a long time. It, yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. lovely. Congratulations. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah. And I think that's why it's so important that we create these queer spiritual spaces as well, so that people who feel out of place in club scenes, or maybe, you know, want to have spaces where they can meet other queer people or where their queerness doesn't have to be front and center and they can still be vulnerable and be supported and talk about these yes. insecurities with Very people is so so important yeah yeah so having those um, spaces is, yeah is really important i think
And especially in, yeah. you know, cultures like the one that I live in, we're a very rural culture, very rural. And in these rural places, there can be a lot of bigotry. There can be a lot of internalized homophobia as well as externalized homophobia. Yeah. And, and I'm so lucky that as a drag queen, I've been given a platform to be able to address those. But then what I found is that as a druid, Welsh society has also still said, actually, we want you to come on television and talk about that. And um, and I'm so grateful that I've had those opportunities to to be seen in a society that is very rural and that can come with its own problems and, yeah. and be able to chat about it, not just as a druid or a person of, of a particular form of spirituality, but also as just as an ordinary gay person uh, who just happens to be a drag queen. So, and it all blends in, you know, I always think that my autobiography will be called Death, Drag and Druidry, you know, because I spent most of my life in a morgue. I'm a drag queen and a druid. So it's, uh, that's a quandary of quiddity right there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I think that a lot of people in the US experience that same issue of being very rural. There's a lot of, you mm. know, queer people who live in rural areas who haven't yet moved to the city or just don't desire to move to the city, but want yeah. to feel accepted and supported in the communities they live and, and face that bigotry and that internalized and externalized, um, you know, homophobia. So yeah, yeah. I'm glad yeah. that, yeah, it, it's definitely an issue. So as it we're is. reaching the end of our time together, um, you know, what, what parting wisdom do you have to share with the listeners? Oh my gosh, parting wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably on the floor, isn't it? Um, do you know there's there's it's tricky, isn't it? Because I have I have a bunch, I have a storehouse of wisdoms for particular things, but now I'm trying to think, how does that apply to to queer listeners? <laughs> you know, um, I think that ultimately all of our all of our actions in the real world should reflect who we feel internally. And to be the best version of ourselves means that we have to start by being honest with who we actually are. And unlike so many people out there, I suffered with my own internalized homophobia, internalized misogyny, but I had to deal with them. I had to have a word with myself and speak to myself about these things. And, and also it took me a long time to come to the realization that what other people actually think of me is really none of my business. And that I can still strive to be the per the best person that I can be. And that ultimately, my spirituality is about the journey of transforming my anxieties into joy. And it certainly has done that. But that also means that I have a responsibility to help other people transform their anxieties into joy, which I hope that I go in some way to doing. But responsibility is a peculiar thing because it implies that we have to have the ability to respond to where that sense of responsibility comes from. And I think that always starts with who and what we are, how comfortable we are in our own skin. And sometimes we may not feel very comfortable in our own skill and in our own skin. And that's okay. It's okay to not feel comfortable. Um, what I think matters is how we work on that and how we reflect that into the world. And I often think that, you know, whether you whether it's Druidry, Christianity, Wicca, Buddhism, all of those traditions, all of their wisdoms could be put on the back of a beer mat. And if you were to find that beer mat and turn that beer mat over, it would say, try not to be an asshole. <laughs> you know? And I think that's the, the lesson that all of us in life need to learn is just try not to be an asshole. 
and be nice, employ charm, and treat the world as you would want it to treat you. And sometimes that's really difficult, so, so difficult. Um, but striving to not be that asshole in the world will make a huge difference in the world. Ah, yeah, that's there. definitely, yeah, great, great words of wisdom. I love it. So um, how, do, how do people get in touch with you or follow what you're doing, you know, social media, website, what? Well, I'm on all I'm on all the things. I may not be very good at it. Again, that's something I'm trying to work on. <laughs> but you know, it's like no, I'm 52. It's it's a whole other mindset, isn't it? <laughs> it's really active on TikTok, but I am on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook. Um, you just search for my name. My name is spelt in a fairly unique way. So I'm very easy to find just by looking for my name, Christopher Hughes. Um, okay. slap a druid on the end of it and i'll pop up like a rash <laughs> okay great all right and we'll we'll link to those things in the podcast description for people so christopher thank you so much for being on and talking about druidry with me and queerness and it's been a great conversation and i think we really hit some some things that don't often come up so i'm really glad that we got to to discuss some of those that's lovely thank you very much for the opportunity it's been really lovely Thank you for listening. This has been the Career Spirituality Podcast with Julian Crossan Hill. If you enjoyed this show, please consider leaving a rating on whatever site you get your podcasts at. Rating the show allows other people to discover it and be exposed to these ideas around queer spirituality. You can also find my blog and past episodes of this podcast at www.queerspirituality.net. That's www queerspirituality.net. You can also there find links to the Queer Spirituality Facebook group, my various social channels where you can get involved in the discussion or send me your feedback or questions or things you'd like to hear on the show. Thank you again for listening and for your support. Bright blessings.